Hey all. The Use Your Words podcast by Red Flag Poetry has been gone for a while, but we're trying to bring it back. So, we've got an episode today which is unlike some of our previous ones, if you've checked them out. Today, Wes, Matt, and I got together via Zoom to talk about some poems and um, really kind of reflect on what they bring together. These three poems uh, were picked without really communicating beforehand, so... I hope you see in the same way that we did some of the really interesting connections that we draw between these. So I'm going to bring Wes and Matt in right now, and I hope that you will enjoy our conversation. Thanks for checking out Use Your Words. Check out our website at redflagpoetry.com. Email us at contact at redflagpoetry.com. Or find us on pretty much any of your social media platforms. We are trying to find ways to get you poetry in any way possible. So remember, use your words. Thank you all so much for sitting down with me. I'm here with Wesley and Matthew, two great faces. Um, uh, I think Wesley's wearing jean shorts. Um, But the point is, thank you so much for joining me. Wesley, Matthew, hello. How are you doing on this Quarren Tuesday? Um, How are your mental healths? I, I like your portmanteau of Corn Tuesday. I, w- I will say that. Um, I'm doing great. Thank you. It's raining here in western Pennsylvania, and life is wonderful. The sun is shining in eastern Tennessee. The weather is nice. I am drinking a quarantini on Corn Tuesday, and I am only moderately frustrated at our chief editor, Peter Faziani's ability to post a post about a post that is forthcoming. And if that doesn't make any sense to you, just take a quick glance at our social media Red Flag Poetry on Facebook or at Red Flag Poetry on Twitter. Also, Instagram and see our genius leaders, brilliant posting methods, and occasionally some that are actually worth looking at. I would prefer you to contact Mark Zuckerberg, as he is the one who uh, is in charge of how his own site operates. I just uh, play within the rules. Mm-hmm. We're talking about some good things today, so let's get started. I'm going to start by reading God is an American by Terrence Hayes. God is an American. I still love words. When we make love in the morning, your skin damp from a shower. The day calms. Schadenfreude may be the best way to name the covering of adulthood, the powdered sugar on a black shirt. I am alone now on the top floor, pulled by obsession, the ink on my fingers. And sometimes it is a difficult name. Sometimes it is like the world before America, the kinship of fools and hunters, the children, the day's dream of mothers with no style. A word can be the bootprint in a square of fresh cement and the glaze of morning. Your response to my kiss is I have a cavity. I am in love with incompletion. I am clinging to your moorings. Yes, I have a pretty good idea what beauty is. It survives all right. It aches like an open book. It makes it difficult to live. So I think I think I'm drawn to this poem primarily because uh, the the term identity and the term American as an identity term is complicated for Terence Hayes as a as an African American poet, and I think that I think that 
racializing and nationalizing God has been a long trick that people all across the world have played um, and that continue to play. And so I think that I, I think that when Terrence Hayes says God is an American, I mean, I'm, I'm drawn to that phrase as a, as a title. I think it's a beautiful, interesting phrase. Um, and as an American, I'm sure that God is an American, right? Um, but I think that, I think that Hayes means much more than that. And I, I think it's interesting too, that, I mean, I love talking about this poem because and I love talking about it with students because God as an American is a great title, but concepts of nationality and concepts of the divine explicitly don't occur again in the poem. Mm-hmm. So, so I like trying to, I, I like posing questions, especially with students um, and often with myself about, you know, why, why is this poem called God is an American when God and America don't really explicitly appear again? I, I think that, I think that the divine appears, appears everywhere. But um, those are my initial thoughts, and gentlemen. When you bring that up with students, how does that kind of play into that? Where God is an American, but He doesn't reappear. What do, you, what are they coming up with, and how are you kind of addressing it? That's a good question. I mean, I wonder just like how that goes over. With right. the student. Okay, and maybe that's a better question. Yeah. How does it go yeah. over? You complicate that understanding for them because I feel like for a lot of them, they'll read that title and go, yep, okay. And then whenever you read the poem, that understanding becomes obviously like veiled in some way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the initial student reactions are usually the question, what's Schadenfreude? Um, yeah, it's the, it's the yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And and is a German word which means taking pleasure in other people's pain. Is that right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And and so I think that I, I think that once that becomes clear, and after a couple a couple reminders about what's happening in the poem, and America does come up again in the second stanza, kind of. He says, but but it's not America. It's the world. For America, um, and so in a lot of ways, this poem is more about love and obsession and beauty. And it's about God or America, but so why? So why then does God as an American feel like a fitting title? And so I think I often ask the question: Does it still seem like a fitting title? And students tend to tend to say that it is, but they don't necessarily know why. And I. I think that my own reading of the poem is similar. I think that I think that the poem fits the title very well. Do you and think that's something to do? It has something to do with the nature of obsession and the the longing for understanding beauty. And I mean, these are poetic tropes that we've been dealing with for a very long time, right? And I think that actually, ink can name can. This might be a sonnet. It's three stanza, three quatrains, and an ending cup, mm. and a very loose rhyme scheme. Um, a very morning name. They're, they're loose, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a slant rhyme, but I mean, morning covering calms am. 
in name dream. I mean, I would, I would call those slant rhymes. And, you know, so the only other morning, morning or Shakespearean sonnets is iambic pentameter. But anyway, so, so Hayes has some, some traits in common with the sonnet. Actually, Hayes is known for sonnets. Um, so probably it's probably an iambic pentameter, too. I didn't even I didn't even think of that until you just pointed it out in looking at it. Looking at it looks like a sonnet when you look. Yeah. Through. Well, and I, you know what? All right, screw it. I still love words when we make love in the morning. When I still love words when we make love in the morning. No, it's not quite am, iambic pentameter, but only Shakespearean sonnets are iambic pentameter. I think Charcot sonnets have a different. Um, yeah. But. Um, no, so and, but if it's a sonnet and sonnets are traditionally love poems, then well, isn't there also layer of meaning? But I like how so it's not necessarily cons consistent in its form, and right this this American ideal is also breaking with consistent form. Beauty is certainly an American trope that we have, and then it's not to say that other uh, nations haven't dealt with beauty in the same way, but to deal with it in this physical matter in this very uh, present tense. These issues, I feel like that's also kind of a, it's not an unusual thing to find in this kind of issue of uh, America, you know, maybe yeah. I'm wrong here, but I think that that relates to that kind of issue of God as an American, and these are traditionally things that we, we find, and yet are broken or changed in some way, just like the idea of the sonnet. Yeah. So wait, are you... I'm confused by this, that, that last um, couplet where he says, I have a pretty good idea of what beauty is. I feel like it complicates the reading that you were just trying to come to. Where he, he's not necessarily certain right. of what beauty is. We've, we've got a pretty good idea of what beauty is. But as Wes has already suggested, Hayes is very kind of aware of the problems with the American quote-unquote nationality, what it means yeah, to be an American. something that he's pointing out there, too, is that, that we have, as, an, as America, we might have a pretty good idea of what beauty is. We, right. we have... We don't know what perfection is, and otherwise, we, we like to think we do as Americans, right? We love, we love to think that we are God, right? We love to think we're perfect. And, and the other relationship that comes up right before that, when he's talking to his lover, and he says, your response to my kiss is, I have a cavity, which <laughs> essentially is the same as, like, I have a headache, right? Like, it's the, uh, you know... Um, and Wait, so, you, you read it as, like, a pain? I read, that? You read that cavity as, a, like, a, like, a pain or a headache? No, no, no. I'm saying like when when I have a cavity as a response to a kiss. That's like saying I have a, a headache as a response to maybe an intimate gesture. See, okay. I feel it as a sense of insecurity, <coughs> right, or an you know, emptiness. Yeah, yeah, that's which, like which which you're going to the mouth and they have a cavity. They might say that as a sense of insecurity or an emptiness, right? The, a um, cavity is literally yeah. an emptiness. So literally an emptiness. Yeah. 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 Well, and then right after that, he says, I am in love with incompleteness, right? So the idea, yeah. all of this is actually what makes it, possibly this is what makes me love it. And it's like, I just, and I'm just thinking of this because I just taught this, but I think it's Sonnet 29 when Shakespeare says, my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Um, and he hurts yeah. all of the traditional images in a sonnet. Um, he says, you know, my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun, her cheeks not rosy, etc. where he says that she is not beautiful traditionally, but he loves her anyway. Um, I think that's Sonnet 29. Actually, let me just bring that up because I think that, I think that it's fair to um, bring this up, 
Nope, not 29. Here. Oh, no, 130. But I think that this is a welcome connection since Hayes is participating in the sonnet tradition anyway, even if loosely. Um, but so Shakespeare's sonnet says, My mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love is rare as any she belied with false compare. This idea of the reality of love and imperfection. And I think that I, I think that Hayes is in perfect conversation with that, with, with the lover in the poem, but also probably with the concept of America and the concept of God for the same sense of incompleteness or the cavity that like so so your discussion of that drew me to another sonnet that that I had just recently taught that I don't know, can I can I read it and just see if we can I don't know. For some reason you 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 your discussion of Hayes in connection to Shakespeare there drew me to Claude McKay. And Claude McKay has a sonnet that I feel like also hits on some of these same things. Um, and I, so I, that's why I ran away from the camera for a moment to go grab a book. Read it. Um, so it's Claude McKay, If We Must Die. Um, he says, If we must die, let it, let it not be like hogs. Hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monstrous we defy shall be constrained to honor us who are dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe, though far outnumbered we must show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow, what though before us lies an open grave. Like men, we'll face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. This Claude McKay's If We Must Die, if you want to look it up, you can find it, I'm sure. I think it is a little. The whole um, idea that you were talking about of this connectedness where the, there's a connectedness based on a lack of, like that cavity that you were discussing there, that there's something that's missing shows up in the poem as well. Yeah. And his understanding of together we must sort of understand that there is a lacking of something here, that there, that there's something missing. Um, and overall, this is a call to action for, for people to um, come to arms within the Harlem Renaissance in some way and come, come together but I think it's speaking to that same sort of we we were our togetherness is because of the fact that we are all not able to have something like the, the togetherness based on emptiness sort of idea. I tend to also think of writing and form as another use of illusion as well, right? That so once you enter in to a particular form, particularly like a sonnet, mm -hmm. you're alluding to like the tradition of sonnets. Right, like there's there's a sense of thematic unity across all sonnets, even even in the defying of that thematic element. You know, there's something there's something that unites sonnets beyond just rhythm and meter and rhyme. 
And even in defying that, you're still alluding to that initial kind of expectation of the sonnet, right? Mm-hmm. I, I also really like the way that McKay does that here, right? That this isn't... It's, it's, it's engaging with the idea of a sonnet in, in interesting ways. If you look it up. Yeah, yeah, I, I see it. I, I love this poem. Uh, for some reason, this is, I don't know why this didn't come up to me in, in this moment, too, because it, it sort of speaks to a similar idea. So what are you reading for us, Matthew? I will be reading a poem titled April 2013, I'm sorry, Wesley sat down again, and now he's got the loudest (laughs) snack on earth. Can you please reintroduce your poem uh, a little bit? I I will be reading a poem titled April of 2013 um, by a poet named Neil Hilborn. This poem comes from his collection, Our Numbered Days. Um, He's released from poetry. He's always been a poet that I've followed and been intrigued by. And this poem seemed appropriate for a number of reasons. Um, it deals with themes of isolation, but it's also dated April, uh, which seemed to be entirely too on point for me at this time in, in history, whenever I'm stuck in my apartment for weeks on end in the middle of April. So this poem titled April 2013. Uh, Crime rates rise with the temperature. Elsewhere in the country... A bomb has exploded at a marathon. Fertilizer plant has exploded in Waco. A coffee shop has exploded in Iraq. Many things have exploded in Syria. Where I come from, everyone is surprised no one has flown a plane into the refinery. I'm no longer where I come from. I live in Minnesota, and in Minnesota it has just snowed seven inches. And winter forever means I will be safe forever. We've all been stuck in our houses for so long that we are growing used to them. Who would build a bomb in this weather? Who would plot anything this morning? Who would want all our houses to be ash or hospitals or tombs or anything other than houses? It's been so cold for so long that my fingers could not build anything other than a fire. But the robins? Well, the robins arrived today, and the forecast calls for rain. I don't think I've ever read that before. Where did you first come across uh, that poem and that, and this this poet? Have you ever heard anything from Neil Hilborn before? Name is not familiar. Mm-hmm. Well, he um, came up to me specifically through Button Poetry, and and I taught this poem, oh. I taught a couple of poems from this book two summers ago when I taught that summer only program, um, summer honor program at, at IUP, and poet. Students of mine recognized him. Like he's he's apparently famous. Okay. In, in a in a sort of like, I guess like 2020 viral sense where like people know who he is, um, and that's what initially turned me on to Neil Hilborn in on my own because people just knew who he was. So he came to my attention that way. Um, Man, viral in 2013 and 2020 really have different meanings, huh? Don't I think they do? Uh, yeah. Can, can we, we can we can latch onto that a little bit. But this, this was written in 2015. Um, oh. by so isn't, isn't the year isn't the year in the title 2013? It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. 
So it was probably written in 2013, but this this collection was published in 2015. Sure. It's a good poem. Um, and also, I mean, it's interesting, April 2013 seems to echo a pattern from Easter 1916, too, which, um, and, and deal with similar similar thematic things. Um, for, uh, for us to not have a theme, we sure seem to have developed some. Perhaps we're just all on a wavelength. I mean, um, well, I do think there's there's um, absolutely some connections there with what you're saying, Wes, between um, this and Easter of April, Easter of nineteen whatever, sixteen, nineteen sixty, yeah, Yates, Billy Yates. So without without googling it, are all of these real things that happened in April of twenty thirteen or? I mean, does that matter? I, I'm not so sure it matters, but so, I guess so, I'm curious. So you, I, I, I was on the same wavelength. I thought that, and I wanted to look that up. But I, at the same time, I don't think it matters. Okay. Because I think the way he's presenting them is that it's thing that it's April 2013. We don't have a day. Is the first thing that, that sticks out to me here is we don't have a day, um, and the entire title of this collection is Our Number Days, which seems to speak to something there. Secondly, I don't think it matters because they're all just sort of things that we've become numb to, right? Like when crime rates rise, we just if we see it as a number. We don't really care that it's happening. Um, and when the elsewhere in the country a bomb has exploded in Waco, in if in, it exploded in Iraq or others have exploded in Syria, we just we just sort of take it. We don't really care that it's happening. Um, so I think that's what he's speaking to with that is that these sort of things happen on a day-to-day -day basis without any sort of thinking on it in any way. We just, we just let it happen and we move on. Um, but at the same time, personally, as in this story, as in, in our current situation, when we become isolated and something happens to us sort of personally, it becomes a problem, right? Like he's like, I, I've been stuck in my house for days um, for so long that we're growing to get used to them. We would build a bomb. Who would build a bomb in this weather? Sort of questioning the whole gambit at that point. No, no, no. I like the poem. I think it's really interesting when we look at the fact that I mean, because I like what you're saying that we don't pay attention to crime rates, or but maybe not in 2013 at the same level, but now with social media the way it is, I'm getting daily uh, updates on how many people in Michigan have contracted coronavirus and how many have succumbed to it. That it's not that we don't care, but that we don't take stock of it maybe i read that i read that differently i think that I, I i think that he's saying that we do like he is cataloging it almost sounds like a catalog to me sure that he is that so it would not surprise me i don't know matt if you remember or not but it would not surprise me if those are all events from april 2013 yeah Sounds like it, it sounds like to me that that is essentially a Twitter feed from an early April morning, 2013, or like you know, so so Red Flag Poetry published um, <clears throat> uh, "Florida Man" by Tyler Gillespie, right? And there are two poems in there that are literally headlines about Florida Man, right? And so in a way, it's a found poem. And I'm not suggesting that this is a found poem, but I think that certainly, certainly these events had happened, and this is a commentary on that inundation, inundation of news. Yeah. 
Um, and so for me, it's more of an acknowledgement of that inundation than a refusal of it. Which I can get on so, board with. To, to speak to that, and I think, I think you're onto something, absolutely. I just looked it up, that the, and I feel bad for not knowing this, that the Boston Marathon bombing did occur on April 15th of 2013. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, those, those events take such a monumental part of our lives that, you know, unless they're named by, like, you know, so we name that by the Boston bombing, we don't name it by September 11th, so they mm-hmm. kind of you know, fragmented in our minds differently and by by the event itself rather than by the events that preceded or followed it. Well, I think that sort of speaks to what I was saying, too, the sheer fact that, that that happened and it took a Google search for me to actually recall the date. Um, right. It's something that I think, I think it speaks to a lot of what we're all saying here, that, that it's sort of these events happen and they get cataloged and we just sort of keep moving on. Right. Um, right. Well, and, and in fact, you know, so most of us do that. And that's actually a preferable response because there are also a number of people who then deny that it ever happened. Yeah. You know, there, there are Boston bomber deniers. There are Sandy Hook deniers. There are people who deny that these world altering events even happened or that the people were real or that it was, it, or you know, they suggested it was planned or you know, God forbid the wow. earth is flat. Yeah. 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 So I think that, I, I think, I think that you're right too, that part of the commentary is that we catalog these things and we stock them away. And I know like, and Peter, Peter writes about this in his dissertation, right? That we kind of become accustomed to atrocities as a byproduct of war or living in an age like we do now, right? That we come to this. And so, I don't know, Peter, maybe you can speak to some of the theory behind that more. I mean, but sure, just, just, just to continue to speak on this, I just looked it up again. Do you know that two days after the Boston Marathon bombing, a fertilizer plant exploded in Waco, Texas, killing so 25 these people? must be all moments in, you know, and I bet if you were to look up the weather in Minnesota in April, there was probably a period where it snowed seven inches. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's uncommon in Minnesota, whereas the, the Boston bombing or the fertilizer plant are prob- probably uncommon. And I think that that draws con- uh, distinction to that the poem really wants us to recognize. It snows a lot in Minnesota. And the fact that it right where it's dwelling on, it has just snowed the seven inches, whereas the Boston bomber uh, bombing happened the one time in April of 2013. And those things are very rare, whereas it snows a lot, and that's what we're being drawn to. And I also think mm-hmm. that when we look at the uh, form, and this is not to kind of subvert the uh, uh, conversation and kind of sh- push it into, into form, but when you look at the form of the poem, the data, the kind of events, are in these two-line stanzas, whereas the reflection and the development of that are in the three-line, uh, and that, that's not... Yeah, sorry. That's not to say that it only happens there, because there is some crossover. But the personal reflection exists in the longer lines. And I think that that's, there's got to be something to that in the, what he's thinking about in the construction of information. Yeah. And I find it interesting that um, that line that says, winter forever means I will be safe forever. I don't know if that's speaking to something that we can all maybe sort of relate to at this point in time where this winter for him means 
I mean, I have to stay inside. Right. It snowed seven inches outside and I can't move my car. But for us, that sort of idea of, of isolation and seclusion means safety. Um, I guess something that he's there that connected with me at this point in time particularly. Well, and I think it's interesting, too. I mean, we, we haven't actually read or talked about Easter 1916 yet, but to talk about, you know, April 2013, Easter 1916, and then someday spring 2020, right? Like, you know, the season we all spent in, inside. Um, this, is, this is going to ir- irrevocably change the way that we perceive the world and the way that history is written and and our world will never quite be the same just as our world maybe uh, maybe a, a smaller world was never the same after easter 1916 and maybe america was becoming very different in in april 2013 yeah, absolutely the world will never change you know spring 2020 and but this is also one of the reasons that you know people wrote about christ so much including people who weren't christians right that, you know, whether, regardless of what you believe, the death of Christ changed history. Literally, we started a new timeline, right? Like you have B.C. and A.D. because of the death of Christ. Um, mm-hmm. Birth of Christ, I'm sorry. But so the idea that these moments or these periods of time define our lives regardless of how we associate with them. Because even if you even if you're still a coronavirus denier and you're walking down the streets licking fucking doorknobs, it has changed the world that you live in. Right? Like no, no, access to matter. There's plenty of less fucking people licking doorknobs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But but also but I mean and, and not and, and to draw one more poetic parallel, Chaucer was Chaucer grew up during the Black Plague and, and so he grew up in feudalist Europe, and then by the time that he was writing the Canterbury Tales, feudalism had been eradicated because the Black Plague wiped out a third of England. Well, it, it 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 changes us. It changes the way that we respond to the world. And I and I think that April twenty thirteen is a beautiful example of that. And I think that I think that the time in which we're having this conversation is going to lead to more conversations about the same kinds of things. No. I, I agree, and I think it's interesting that, to what you were to piggyback on that, that the fact that these things did matter very drastically to a lot of fucking people. Oh, yeah, the fact yeah. That Google when the Boston Marathon was is almost insensible. Like, I, I, it's absolutely, I should feel bad about having to have done that. But, but, but it also emphasizes the, 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 the purpose of the poem and that you lived through that. Yeah. You were a grown-ass man when that happened and you catalog that just like everybody else, right? Yep. That was just one more thing that you filed back there. As a um, up thing that happened that yeah. just screwing with me, the same thing, everything else was no. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, there's also a distinction to draw that because you weren't there, you can't possibly experience it in the same way that somebody was there. So it's not necessarily um, atypical for you to say, I didn't know it was in April in 2013. Cause that's never what you've said. You said I didn't know it. Or sorry, you never said that it. You didn't know it happened. You said I didn't know that it was April 2013. And I think that there's an important kind of I lived through it moment to kind of build there. What the poem is saying here, right? He's drawing on the fact that I'm living through seven inches, and to him that's atypical because he says I live in Minnesota now, right? And so his fingers can't do anything. So, 
you two have talked about very well. I don't want to say I don't know when Terrence Hayes released God as an American, um, but it's focused on a contemporary experience. Let me put it that way. Um, it's not referencing something that is so historical in its context, other than perhaps the Shakespeare, which is historical in and of itself. So I'm going to switch gears and talk about something a little bit different, and maybe we can talk about it and how it really kind of talk, compares to, to what we're doing here. So uh, I'm going to read excerpts from this, but the entire thing is one long poem. It is called Shannon. It is a poem of the Lewis and Clark expedition by Campbell McGrath. And so what's, um, so this is one long poem, I guess a little important background about this. So George Shannon uh, was a, a, a member of the expedition who was a young man um, who was brought on. And this is all real historical account. He was lost. He was on his own for a matter of, of, of weeks in this open country with at one point like two or three musket balls um, and, you know, uh, some beef jerky and very little supplies. And what's really interesting about it is that he was such a minor role in the, in the expedition that he didn't keep a pen and paper. So even though he was lost and um, his, his uh, experiences were on his own, there's no record written down of his experience. And actually, in the journals themselves, which I've got here because I do fancy myself a Lewis and Clark scholar a little bit, um, the only real mention of... of oh, really? This is news to me. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, I wrote a lot about it during my master's. I, I think that Pete is just a fan of anything that's uh, dreadfully boring. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, you're you're probably right. Do you know why though? Do you know why? Because it's mundane. It's quotidian. It's not dreadfully boring. It's all about the language. Oh, but all quotidian is it? <laughs> so, on um, the uh, journal journal entry from Tuesday, August fifth, or sorry, August eighth. The only real mention. There are a couple mentions in here. But it says, at noon, Ruby and Fields arrived and reported that he had been up Wisdom River, some miles above where it had entered the mountain, and could find nothing of Shannon. He killed a deer and ate antelope, great quality of beaver. But the point is that the only real mention of Shannon is in this passing, we, well, we lost him, we're on our own. So we don't have anything real concrete about this. And what Campbell McGrath is doing in these poems is trying to explore that sense of loss and isolation. And I think there's something so powerful and relevant now, in, even though Shannon is on this open country, and we are in our you know uh, parlors of two, three hundred square feet, the loss and the isolation is very real for some people, especially when you are a person um, like the two of you are, which exist hey. in social situations. You know. Uh, the thing, the interesting thing about Shannon is that it embodies the entire spirit, right? And so, even though it cuts across the entire uh, experience and does it um, without real kind of guidance, because there's Shannon left us nothing. It's one long poem, but it's broken up into sections. And so, I'm going to read a section from about the middle that really starts to demonstrate where Shannon is losing some of his kind of sense of self. Uh, due to the isolation. But there's something more about form that is visually going on here. 
um, that you can only kind of really see when you look at the poem itself. So I'm going to actually jump ahead to the middle of, of poem six anyway, because it's really capturing some of the things that are happening in the, throughout the entire poem um, and jump around from there. So in the middle of poem six, it says, Hi, craggy bluffs, betimes I detour along the very edge of them, eager for their vista despite the river twists and turns so... Where, oh where, have the captains got to? Must be driving the keelboat steady under sail to make such time. Plus, which the pirogues alone the, with the black horse now I know cover good distance daily they cannot. Keep ahead of me forever, it would seem. Get on, horse. And, and then he jumps... Where, where is this? Uh, I don't know if I sent you this one either. I'm getting to a thing that I sent you. Chill the fuck out. Or this is going in the podcast. You're drunk ass. I like to read what, what I like to be able to follow along, Peter. Okay, so I, I'm going to read one stanza. I'm going to read one stanza, and then I'll get to where you can read, I promise. Why God would create a thing that wanders aimlessly? He would seem to prefer straight thinking, if I may presume, so as to simplify the task. Why would he create such an animal as these buffalo? To feed men, which purposefully, sorry, which purpose they no doubt admirably fulfill. For the Indians at any rate. And then I'm going to jump ahead. And that's this one, you two, if you care to. It's the one where my red, page 38. Buffalo, buffalo, buffalo. No. Uh, it's page 38, the one that starts, who then has put such thoughts into my head, if not God himself. There. Okay. Who then has put such thoughts into my head, if not God himself? Surely not the devil. I do not believe that rascal entwined in this billowing tapestry with nothing from him to grasp upon but clouds and wind or hide behind and rear up from, not even the yucca gloriosa, a difficult plant, but not evil intended. Is this also blasphemous? I believe Parson MacReady would say so, but he is often off the beam and a poor judge of workmen and cheap besides. If my thoughts arise direct from this landscape, how other they be God-ordained could they be? For it is all of a piece who made this grass, made also wind, dust, thorn, the grasshopper, shadow and light, a dove, I wish would set upon the stump to wring its neck, and I would eat it raw. My hunger grows powerful. This much for certain, if God did create the buffalo, he made one great, strange, daft, animal and so what's really interesting about this entire poem and it goes on and he goes on to kind of continue talking about um the experience where he's critically alone but also reflecting a lot about his family where he's from in ohio um and as he goes further still, there's a point which I did send you guys in picture, but where he starts to just lose everything. And it's just that pages of on pages of buffalo, 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 buffalo. And it's just so critical in here about how isolation, even in one of the most pristine places, which arguably could also be our home, can end up taking its toll and and driving us mad, right? The place yeah, that we sleep, apart, right? yeah, the place where we sleep, which should arguably be the most comfortable, is the place that's going to kill us all. 
and now argue, admittedly right, where Shannon is um, on the expedition certainly isn't comfortable. But at the same point, it's this... Doesn't it also connect to that, though? Because he, he's in a place that's uncomfortable, and he's in a place where he, he's going to have to sleep there, um, and yet he's not going to be able to feel any form of safety or... or it, and, and to bring that into the larger conversation, too, I mean, the things that have made us feel safe for our entire lives are now the very things that will kill us. Right. We've always, we've always yeah, yeah. Or the things we take for granted. There's a point earlier on in the poem where uh, Shannon said, or the, you know, the narrator Shannon says, um, why did I use that shot on this particular antelope? I should have saved it. And then it, it like uh, McGrath is describing him trying to dig the shot out of a deer, but it has disintegrated into the bone. And he's like, so it's a, it's a lack of foresight at that point yeah. as well. And it's like the fact that we, we should have seen this coming. And that yeah, there was a trouble on the horizon, sort of thing, and we were we got so comfortable in our day to day that we just neglected it. Um, but the but the disintegrated bullet in the deer on the uh, on the free range is much more poetic than the toilet paper that we forgot to pick up on. Oh, absolutely! But the thing is, yeah. we didn't we didn't rush to the store to buy the toilet paper. Right, Shannon didn't didn't think about oh I'm going out with this I'm going to get lost. So there's something kind of intrinsic there in this well, narrative. The idea rushed us, and the idea rushed Shannon too. Right. Like the whole idea of having to do this rushed that character the same way it rushed us. Um, so I think another thing that's really important control, about this. There's a lack of control there is what I is what I'm saying then too. Is there a lack of our own ability as a human being to control our own actions whenever we're presented with with an opportunity? Absolutely. And Shannon blames begins to start blaming other people yeah. for his own and this is not the same for us, of course, because there's there's only we we're we're trying our best, or at least some of us are, um, to, to kind of control it. But these are things that are outside of his control, but he really starts to blame Lewis and Clark. He blames his father. He blames President Jefferson. Um, I saw that where, he blamed, where Jefferson came up. Yeah, and so, like, he's starting to blame these other people rather than, I got lost. It's my fault. Um, I do think also, and this is really relevant to both the poem, because this is a poem that where narrative form really kind of... Um, plays a factor in this, because you can see it in the Buffalo thing, you can see it in some of the samples. Um, the way that Shannon reflects on his own situation is changing very much dramatically as the poem goes on. And I don't know if you guys have felt this way, but I'm reflecting on my own house differently now. The spaces I inhabit, I use them differently now than I did uh, four weeks ago. And so, like, yeah, yeah. like a week ago at this point, yeah. Right. And, yeah. and like, the language I use in those spaces, very different language, the way I use language there. And it's not to say that, like, um, I, I'm a, I was super formal in my dining, dining room three weeks ago, because I wasn't. But the point is, like, I wouldn't have had a conversation about how we're going to pay the mortgage in the dining room three weeks ago, because... I had a job that was paying me and I had things on the horizon that I didn't have to worry about money in the same way. And so like I'm the very landscape is changing the way I think in my own environment in a very critical way. And I don't think George Shannon or even Campbell McGrath is writing this in that, in that mode, but I think it's having that impact on me rereading it now. Well, I mean, how can you, I mean, I, I, I don't know. How can you say they weren't 
writing it in that way. It's the thing, because, I mean, their their landscape was changing pretty drastically just as being people inhabiting this space at that time. And also, I mean, something that we've all been interested in, along with A.J. Schmitz, is is place studies and kind of the relationship of space within within the novel or within the poem, right? Like how how space is created and also how the people, the, the characters or the narrator interacts with that space. So, I mean, space, space studies and place studies and spatiality theory is relatively new, but these are things that we've been talking about for a long time, right? That, you know, Peter's inch and a half off of his chair um, changes the relationship uh, of Peter to the rest of the room. I was and, uh, sitting up looking at the timer on the microphone just for everyone's reference. It really does play with space and place in, in, a, in a very interesting way. Um, I, and it's a very different America, right? This is clearly pushing the boundaries on what America is then. And I think... It's a specific subset. It's a specific space. And he even says it here in the one line that you sent us, um, why shouldn't youth count against a man in this Missouri county? Right. I mean, he's very specifically about the place. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that it, it's not a different place. It's the same space, but our relationship to it has changed. Well... So, it is arguably a very different place. Do you think George Shannon now would be like, oh yeah, I was here last week? It's literally the same geographic. But I mean, the place has changed, yes. but it is the same space. Yes, and it still is. Which is which is complex. I mean, I'm not... Right. So if I can take this to something contemporary, even just this reference to Missouri brings to me the idea of Ozark. And Wes, you've watched Ozark. Have you? Have yeah. You, have you have you watched the third season? Is something I, I have, have not. I have not. It, it's incredible, but it does it does also deal with this same sort of idea of, of place and the sheer fact that they're in this Missouri space that that is so much um, disconnected from from the mainland um, yeah. offers a sense of seclusion. Outside, well, I, mean, I don't know if this is coming up in this necessarily, but I but I get that same sort of sense. Of but this, I, I think that when you talk about place, it absolutely does because I mean the thing that makes America America to circle to come full circle to God is an American by Terence Hayes. The thing that makes America America is the echo and the ghost of everything that has come before that has made the place what it is today. The place is the same. What we've put on top of it is the palimpsest that keeps that keeps building and changing, right? But the, it undoubtedly keeps growing and changing. Yes. But yeah. the thing about the palimpsest is that if you tear, if you tear Terence Hayes's palimpsest of America back far enough, you get the America that Pete just read in that poem, right? Like, like Pete, the the America in the poem okay. that read Lewis and Clark's America, and forgive me, what's the narrator's name of that poem? George Peter? Shannon. George Shannon, Shannon right? yeah. And and, Sh and Shannon's America is Hayes' America, but it's 150 layers removed, right? But if you peel it back far enough, Shannon's America is there. Oh, yeah, right. no, absolutely. Because I was going to say, is it even that removed? It, it, I, it, no, I mean, I mean our, yeah, our, our concept of time and history is a little perverse in that way. But I mean, I mean for us, it's far removed. Yeah. That several hundred years removed, but for in the grand scheme of things, our America and Shannon's America are much more similar than our America and you know a prehistoric America. Right. 
and hell, it's they're all still connected to Neil Hilburn's America as well. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're falling victim to these these atrocities that are occurring on a daily basis, and we're just sort of watching them happen. Um, I think yeah. they we 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 have we have sufficiently um, come to a through line here. I, I do believe. I do believe, and I've taken up so much of your time, and there are things to be consumed, gentlemen. Shall we do this again? I promise I will pick a straightforward poem next time. Hey, thanks for checking out the episode. Thanks for bearing with us. Like I said, this is a new format for us, uh, technologically and content-wise. We're doing things a little bit different right now during quarantine. In fact, that we're all so far apart from each other anyway. So uh, thanks for checking us out. Be sure to follow us, subscribe to our podcast, check out our previous episodes, and check out our website at redflagpoetry.com. Thanks. Thanks.